everyone. This is Regina. Hi, horse lovers. This is Lynn. This week on the Horse Industry Podcast. So, Gina, before we start taping uh, part two today, what's so funny is that Kevin and I were listening to our unedited version of part one. Mm-hmm. So we're driving down the road, and Kevin is listening, and he he's really enjoying it, I can tell, and he's starting to ask me questions. And I'm like, listen, you got to follow along here. Yeah. And so then we get to the cliffhanger, and he looks at me, and he's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> what is going on here? And I'm like, sorry. When Ann Kurth came into the marriage of John and Joan oh, Hill. That little bitch, Ann Kurth. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is part two of the Joan Robinson Hill story. And we have tried and tried and tried to figure out how to make this into a two-parter. It's got to be a three-parter. So I'm sorry that I left all of you guys hanging on part one, but sorry, not sorry. Well, and heads up, I see another cliffhanger coming here. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Okay, so as a quick recap, Joan Robinson was born to an unwed mother. Her biological parents didn't know who they were. Ash and Rhea, and it's funny because in part one, I said, it's either Rhea or Rhea, but I'm going to start saying Rhea. I listened to the unedited version. I called her Rhea throughout the whole thing. So we're going with Rhea. So Ash and Rhea Robinson adopted Joan as a baby. Her middle name was Olive. I'm not sure I shared that in the first part. Olive. I know. Isn't that a good middle name? Yeah. Joan Olive Robinson. Ash, more than anything in the whole wide world, wanted a little baby girl, and he got that. And so he doted on her. She was pampered. She had everything she wanted in life. She loved horses. She was a very talented rider. Probably her most famous horse was Beloved Belinda. She won multiple world championships. She went off to college. Her parents helicopter parented her. She was divorced twice by the time she was 20. Okay, so Joan Hill met John Hill at a dinner party. And by all accounts, they looked, quote unquote, like a great pair because they were both beautiful people. But the reality is that their friends said they were a complete mismatch. But they went ahead and got married. Ash actually kind of supported this marriage, although he did not support the first two marriages of Joan Robinson. So Joan married John. And in the beginning of their marriage, they were they were apart a lot. Joan's passion showing horses really had her traveling across the country. John's passions were medicine and music. And in the research that I found, John was really pushed to become a doctor by his mother, the very religious Myra. But the reality was that John's true passion in life was his music. And that really was a significant part to the undoing of John and Joan's marriage. So they're kind of plugging along. Joan is now settled into the life of a doctor's wife. She's a mother to Boot Hill, uh, Boot's actual given name at birth was Robert Ashton Hill, but Grandpa Ash said that he should be nicknamed Boot, B-O-O-T, and that's what everyone called him. So Joan really settled into being a doctor's wife, a socialite, and she still had this passion for horses, and she did buy a farm with her daddy Ash's money because she was going to make a lot of money at having a horse farm. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so to the outside world, this looked like the perfect life that Regina and Lynn mm-hmm. would have really dug. Yeah. And like I told Lynn, I wanted to be Joan's friend. She looked like a blast. I mean, she was fun and pretty and un- outgoing and engaging. If you can take all of the stress out of your life, mm-hmm. the worries of money, where you're going to live, cleaning the house, if you take all of the stress, remove it, just erase mm-hmm. it from your life. You can be a freaking blast. You could be a total blast. But do you think, though, that there's some people who are just predisposed to not be happy? And there's some, some people that are predisposed just to be happy? Yeah. And you know, I mean, money, obviously, we've heard this over and over again. Money can't buy By happiness. happiness. Now, those of us that don't have a ton of money don't <laughs> get that. But we see it over and over again. Yeah. And the thing is, I was just reading, I just read something somewhere, and a very wise man, I think he was a cowboy, said something along the lines of, money can't buy happiness, but it's a lot more comfortable riding in a Mercedes versus riding a bike. (laughs) (laughs) So Joan and John, they're living their life. They're basically, I would say, tolerating each other. Joan clearly loved John more than John loved Joan. And I was watching a YouTube video, which I will put in the show notes. And the commentator's message was, it was really good business for John Hill to marry Joan for a couple of reasons. First of all, she was beautiful. And so potential clients looked at his beautiful wife and thought, wow, he's done really good work on her. But the reality was that she's actually a beautiful she woman. Was a natu- it was natural beauty. It he was didn't natu- have to do anything. He didn't have to do her. anything to it. And number two, she was so well connected that that brought in some very wealthy clients for him. So he kind of was very strategic about who he married. And people basically assumed that he didn't love her as much as she loved him. I have given this a lot of thought. Joan got everything she wanted. And I think John's distance from her, his, his, his lack of interest, his, he was very apathetic towards Joan. I think that made her want him more. Gotcha. It was a challenge. It was a a challenge. Only challenge in her life. Right. And she's, you know, she's showing horses. She's got the best of the best. She has really no challenges in life. Daddy gives her everything she wants. What she wants is a man who is kind of like, eh, whatever. I'm married to you, but whatever. I think she saw it as like, oh, let me try to get your attention. Her daily challenge. It was her daily challenge. So anyway, here we are. They're married. They're kind of, they're just kind of living life. You know, I don't think they're particularly happy, but they're not totally miserable. Well, Boot, who at the time is eight years old, goes off to summer camp. Now, I mentioned this in the previous episode. Joan really didn't want Boot to go. John's like, kid needs to go, needs to grow up a little bit. Now, she needs to go pick him up from camp. And this is going to be in August. Well, Boot had been there for four weeks. And so the final day of picking up the kids from camp is this full day of family activities. Joan's like, you're going with me. Ugh, fine. He clears his calendar, gets in the car, they go. Well, this woman named Ann Kurth, who we introduced in the previous episode, was also there. Ann was three times divorced, had three sons at camp, was well-connected, well-educated, and was described as being sexy lush. Whoa. Yeah. So here is... So I'm picturing Marilyn Monroe. Well, dark-haired. I think she... I think it was... People said she looked like Elizabeth... 
Rita Hay- oh, Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor. Okay. Maybe it was Rita Hayworth, one of them. Yeah. So you've got you've got Joan Robinson Hill, who literally looks like Sandra Day O'Connor. And was also described as being very conservative in her dress, like her hemlines were below her knees. And she had all the money in the world, but fashion really did not speak to Joan, where conversely, Ann Kurth was like this brunette bombshell, and she owned it. And she she just pranced around that camp like she was she was all that. Now, Ann was the daughter of a prominent Houston architect. So again, well-connected. Well, I'm telling you... John Hill chased Ann Kurth at camp that day like a rooster chases a hen. <laughs> <laughs> I, and you know, actually, I'm surprised. So, and we mentioned in the first episode that Gina's read the book, mm-hmm. and I, I have not. So, I was going to assume, and and I assumed from the last time we recorded today, that Ann was like a camp counselor, no. camp cook, some kind of quiet spoken musician. Oh hell no, no, she's a bombshell. She is a bombshell, three times divorced mom picking up her three boys at camp. Hello, John. I guess I kind of, he sparked up there from like the dull musician to, uh, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And so in the meantime, during that day, Anne's like, John, your wife's right over there. And John says to her, it's over. It's over anyway. He goes, it's just a matter of time. Joan's whole life is horses. My whole life is my music and my medicine. It wasn't long, and John and Anne were lovers. I mean, it was pretty much right out of the gate after meeting her at camp. Dude was obsessed. So Joan goes off to a horse show. Joan comes home from a horse show to find a note from John that he had, quote unquote, gone away for a bit to find himself. Okay, he didn't go away for a bit to find himself. He went to an apartment with Ann Kurth to hang out. And by hang out, I'm using air quotes. So does Ash find this out? Because I got to believe that Ash is going to dot, dot, dot. That's coming up. Okay, so at this point, Joan gets home from the horse show. She sees this note. She is inconsolable. She calls pretty much. I mean, she's, again, she's a very social person with a ton of friends. She spends her whole life on the telephone. She will tell anyone who will listen. If an exterminator came over, she would have told him. I mean, anybody who would listen, she was inconsolable. Her life is an open book. Her life is an open book. Well, John was pretty much gone for two weeks. With Anne. Joan's trying to call him at the hospital. She's trying to get a hold of him. Yeah, what did he do about his job? He kept going to the hospital. He kept working. He just wouldn't respond to any of Joan's phone calls. He's probably exhausted, He's- poor guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, real quick side note, having Joan and John be the two main characters' names it's a tongue twister. Okay. So John is off doing his thing. Joan is inconsolable. And John and Anne marching around openly during this time. I mean, they're going to dinner together. They're riding in cars together. I mean, John is not hiding this. I Right now, you can't see me, but I am making a mean face. Like, what a piece of crap. Total jerk. Complete jerk. So John did come home quietly one day when Joan wasn't around. Did he visit his son? They don't they don't tell that. They don't describe that. My sense is that, well, there's a there's a part coming up that will kind of give you an idea of that, but they really don't talk about John's relationship with Boot. 
So John comes home one day quietly to the house on Kirby Road to retrieve some sheet music, and he knew that Joan wasn't going to be there. Well, Joan returned, and at first she was like scolding him, how could you do this, blah, 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 and then she starts pleading with him, please, please, you know, this woman's not worth it, she's not worth our family, and Joan even said, I'll even quit my horses. But the problem is that, among other things, John was kind of sick and tired of the control that Ash had over him and his life and his family. So John continues to parade around with Ann Kurth. He, this is crazy. He still comes back to his $600,000 in today's money music room at the house that Joan lives at. Well, now it's mid-November. Okay, so we this starts in August. Now it's mid-November. Joan gets handed divorce papers. Joan wanted to stall. She did not want this divorce. She turned to her daddy, her dad. And I think Ash at this point was aware, but Joan kept blowing it off like, oh, it's just a fling. It's just not that big of a deal. He'll be back. No worries. Well, when she gets handed divorce papers, of course, this is devastating yet again. And I think Ash and a lot of her friends are like, you know what, Joan, this is for the best. Move on. It's, it's, you guys were never a good pair to begin with. Move on. But again, Joan wanted John. So on December 9th, 1968, Ash calls John Hill and basically insinuates if he ever wants to see Boo again, he needs to get to Ash's house right away. So it was clear that John did not really love Joan, but clearly Joan still loved John. And Ash decides to do something about it. So pretty much what Ash does is he bullies John into signing a reconciliation letter filled with all kinds of financial and marital promises. And I'm not going to get into the details, but it basically is like, I'm so sorry. I'm ready to commit to you to being a good husband and to being a good father to boot. And if for some reason I'm not, I'm going to give you this much money and I'm going to pay off these debts and blah, blah, blah. So, oh, this is not good for Joan. No, it's not good for Joan. And so Ash pretty much bullies him into signing this reconciliation letter. Joan can clearly see that this letter is written by Ash and signed by John and knows that her daddy got involved. So this is the strange thing is that Joan and John have a reconciliation dinner with friends at a very fancy restaurant. Who does that? Awkward. Awkward. So this happens, that was on December 9th. So between December 9th and um, December 23rd, John Hill withdraws his divorce action. Joan thinks things are hunky-dory, but yet he's still seeing Ann Kurth on the side. Ann never went away. John would pretend to get phone calls from the hospital and then rush off, but he was really wa- rushing off to see Anne. Guy must have been exhausted. Okay, so at this point, Joan's a little uncomfortable. She's thinking, I gotta make, I gotta keep my man, right? She throws herself into self-improvement. She tries to quit smoking cigarettes. She tries to make herself more beautiful. She, you name it, she's trying to do it. If she knows that John's coming home from the hospital soon, she gets herself all fixed up. Then what happens? He doesn't come home when he's supposed to. I mean, emotionally, she needed some counseling. She needed counseling. If you look at Joan's life comprehensively, and disclaimer, Lynn and I are not counselors, nor are we legal people. We only know she needed help. 
she needed somebody other than daddy to give her advice. And she wasn't listening to her friends, but the woman she's a mess. I mean, she loves a man that clearly does not love and respect her. Her parents were helicopter parents. She can't, she's, and again, I really like Joan and I want to be Joan's friend, but she wasn't very mature maybe, or didn't have naive. She was naive. She was naive. I I feel sorry for her. I have a lot of empathy for Joan. I mean, she had everything she wanted, but she was not happy. And she couldn't get the attention of the man that she felt that she loved and needed. And on Valentine's Day in 1969, John bought Anne and her son a bunch of gifts, gives Joan nothing. So John and Joan, they're not doing well. John's... completely ignoring her. Joan's panicking. In addition, and this is a quote from the book Blood and Money, Tom Thomas Thompson, which a lot of my information came from. And I've done a lot of other research too, but this book really goes into the detail. And a lot of the other sources support what's in this book. So this was kind of my main, my main source of information. But, and I quote, Chatsworth Farm had never approached what Joan intended. No world champion horses were foaled there. Nothing much had been accomplished, save giving a bunch of little rich girls riding lessons and boarding their ponies. There was no lack of youngsters, Joan Robinson Hill remaining a powerful lure for socially ambitious mothers. Part of the trouble with Chatsworth Farm was Ash. One good trainer worked there for a few years, but he found it difficult to get along with the old man. Every time money was needed to purchase a new piece of equipment, it meant prying the funds out of Ash. It's too much of a hassle, said the trainer in explanation to Joan, one of the numerous times he quit, only to be persuaded back by the mistress of Chatsworth. Finally, in 1967, he left for good, angry at a list of broken promises from Ash, and the stables had been without a trainer or manager since his departure. Joan filled in as best she could, hurrying out to the farm at least two or three times a week, But when the Ann Kurth episode commanded her attention, she had little time for horses. Ash was now threatening to sell the place altogether, for it was not paying its way through boarding and riding lessons. Shocker. Often he told Joan that he would not underwrite a major program of breeding and training until a ledger was written in black ink. Joan was flustered. Desperately, she wanted to hold on to Chatsworth, for it remained a dream as cherished as John's music room. She knew that the potential was there, and through Chatsworth, she might leave a mark on her horse world. Thus, she came up with the idea of hiring an old friend, Diane Settergast, to run the stables, more than a stop gate than anything else. Diane Settergast knew little of breeding and training horses, but she could teach the little brats how to keep them from falling off their ponies. And in time, Joan would figure out something else anything to keep Ash from selling Chatsworth. And Diane and her companion Eunice were really a part of kind of the end of Joan's life. They were there literally right before Joan died. So Diane and her... Wait, little brats? (laughs) That was a quote from the book. So Diane and her companion Eunice arrived on March 9th. John at this time was still back and forth to the quote unquote hospital. Really, he was back and forth between the hospital and Ann Kurth. So during their stay, John, you know, the Diane and Eunice often commented about how John usually really liked it when they were there because they kept Joan busy and happy. 
And he was still pretty much a good host. But what was unique about this is that during their stay, John kept coming home with small pastries that he would give the women as a treat. But what was odd about that is that John bought a specific pastry for each of the women. And when Joan wanted to try someone else's pastry or she wanted John's because let's say she didn't want the chocolate eclair, she wanted the whatever. Cinnamon twist. Cinnamon twist. He's like, nope, I bought this one for you. That is yours. Red flag. Uh Red flag. Huge red Red flag. flag. So... The women are still there. It's a Friday night. Joan sees a friend at the local grocery store who said that Joan looked amazing. She looked beautiful, vivacious, healthy, probably the best she's looked in a long time. Well, that night they attended a party, you know, one of their numerous dinner parties. They they had a great time. They're having fun. Joan's living the life. She's the wife of the plastic surgeon. John suddenly wants to leave at 10 p.m. for quote unquote rounds, but the other doctors kind of side-eyed that. They're kind of like, why would he go back to the hospital at 10 o'clock for rounds? Because most of the patients are asleep. Joan begged John to stay at this dinner party. Not going to happen. They get in a fight on the way home. I'm going to assume at this point that John went off to see Ann Kurth. Well, the next morning, Saturday, oddly, Joan sleeps in until 4 p.m., so not like Joan. And Diane and Eunice are still there. They were concerned. John told them not to worry that Joan and John, they had an argument the night before. She couldn't sleep. So he gave her a tranquilizer. (laughs) He said, you know, it's pretty normal for her to sleep so late when he gives her something like that. Also, when are you people leaving? John wants to know. I mean, John's like, when are you people leaving? Which Diane said was really strange because usually he really liked to have them here to keep Joan busy. But at this point, he was like, yeah, I gave her a tranquilizer so she could sleep or whatever. And when are you guys going? And Diane Diane found that odd. So when Joan eventually came downstairs, she was very groggy and very apologetic. She was super embarrassed. And she's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I left you guys here. You're my house guests. Well, at some point during that afternoon, Joan decided that since she's up, she's going to start returning some phone calls. She sent John and Boot off for a haircut for Boot. And before she knew it, it's like seven o'clock at night and they'd been gone for a really long time. She kind of lost track of time because she hadn't felt well and she was busy returning all her phone calls. Well, they get home and she's like, Boo, where were you guys? And Boot says, Daddy told me I couldn't tell you. Well, she's like, no, no, you got to tell me. And Boot admitted that John and him went to the an apartment. And then Joan realized that John still had this apartment with Ann Kurth. Joan flips out. She calls her longtime friend Van, who lived across the street, or at least nearby, and she's totally upset. So Joan, Van, Diane, and Eunice decide to play bridge in the music room that night, where John is on one end of this, you know, almost million-dollar music room, and the girls are on the other end playing bridge. Well, what's a little uncomfortable is that, you know, clearly Joan's trying to get John's attention and she's like, oh, it's over. On Monday, I'm just getting a lawyer. I'm just done with it. 
the other women guests were super uncomfortable with this. Yeah. Awkward. Awkward. And they're like, Joan, if you're going to say something bad, just write it on a piece of paper or something. And so anyway, super awkward. The women didn't like it. Long story short, at one point, John puts on some romantic music, and he comes over and stands behind Joan. They get up and start slow dancing. Joan melts into her husband, and the other women just kind of leave to let them have this, you know, this wonderful time together or whatever. I wish you could see my expressions. I know. (laughs) I just feel so sorry for Joan. She is desperate. I mean, she's just desperate to make her husband love her. Okay, so now it's Sunday. Ash calls to get picked up from the airport, and Diane tells Ash that Joan was kind of fluish and couldn't do it. Fine, he says, you know, I'll get a cab, whatever. Well, the reality was that by now, Joan is puking a lot. She laid around. She was covered with blankets. That night, John, Boot, Diane, and Eunice went out to dinner, like, you know, I guess John's like, well, I got to entertain these house guests. We're going to go out to dinner. They bring some orange juice back to Joan. She continues to puke. The poor woman is barfing her guts out. Okay. Now it's Monday, March 17th. Diane and Eunice, they rise early to get packed. They ask John in the kitchen how Joan is. And John's like, you know what? She's got a virus. No big deal. I'm going to work. Well, Diane and Eunice go to check on her and she asks for water. She looks awful. They offer to stay with her. And she says, nope, nope, no worries. I have Effie and Effie's husband. They're kind of like their house people that take care of her. And so Diane and Eunice leave. And at this point, somewhere along the line, John says, hey, I don't want Joan disturbed all day. Effie, do not go to her room. Do not check on her. She she needs to rest, air quotes, don't disturb her. Well, Effie disobeyed and went and checked on Joan. And Joan looks at her and says, I'm so sick, Effie. And Effie says, you know, it's okay. You know, Dr. Hill will be home soon. And so Effie just assumes that Joan's going to be okay and get looked after by her husband. Well, Tuesday morning comes. John summons Effie to clean up Joan's quote unquote mess. Joan was very, very sick. And John was on his way to play a tuba solo at a local elementary school. John leaves to go play this tuba solo. Effie discovers that not only is Joan super sick, she has towels under her where she has been laying in her dried feces. And there was like flecks of blood in this dried feces. She had been like this for so long, it had dried on her. So Effie tries to get Joan to the bathroom to help her, and she has she has an accident, a bowel movement, before she can even get to the toilet. And Effie notices now that Joan is starting to turn blue. Well, in the meantime, Effie tries to call call Rhea. She tries to call Ash. She tries to call John to no avail. Well, Rhea shows up at the house. Now, at this point, Rhea thinks that Joan's just a little sick. And so when Rhea shows up, Effie takes her straight to Joan. At this time, and it's not clear because a couple of sources say this a little differently, John was either home by now or he was coming home. Either way, they decide she needs to go to the hospital. Well, John says, you know what? Let's not wait for an ambulance. I'm just going to drive her myself. Oh, no. Yeah. And so where does he take her? He doesn't take her to the closer 
Texas Medical Center, this amazing world-renowned medical center that was close, he drives her 45 minutes to this little general brand new hospital called Sharpstown Hospital, where they have no emergency room and no ICU. He says there she's going to get special care. Well, even on the way there, Rhea rides with Joan in the back seat, and Joan's like, Mom, I'm so sick. And literally, John's like on a Sunday drive, drives super slow. Sharpstown, it's reported, was 11 miles away, took them 45 minutes to get there. And when they get there, it was very clear to Rhea that they didn't even know Joan was coming. They were not alerted to the fact that she was on her way. Sharpstown has no ICU, no emergency room, nothing. And in the car on the way there, Joan looks at her mom. Well, I shouldn't say looks, but looks up, I guess, kind of looks up at her mom and says, Mom, I'm blind. I mean, the woman's like going in complete shock. So she, when she does get there, she's got alarmingly low blood pressure. John chooses, and I'm not going to say that they were not good doctors, but they were not well-known doctors to treat her. Here he's got, I mean, he's a doctor himself. He knows who the best of the best is. He he picks two doctors to help her that really, they're not used to seeing critically ill patients like this. They're used to dealing with broken arms and legs yes. and not life-threatening illnesses, maybe a heart attack or something yes. that they would send on to Texas Medical yes. Center but not the critical patient that she was. Exactly. Oh, I hate this guy. Right? Well, and they said that Sharpstown was a great place to have a baby and fix a broken arm. It was exactly. not the place to take oh. this poor woman. So I'm not going to describe all the things that went on with her treatment because they really didn't know what was wrong with her. Was it food poisoning? Was she septic? What they did figure out was that her pretty much her kidneys were shutting down and she wasn't producing urine. And so there was this procedure that they needed to do so that they could kind of flush out her kidneys. And so they called John at nine and said, you need to get here, you need to sign the forms. And he shows up at 11. Uh, why it took him two hours to get to her? I can't believe Ash wasn't there in charge of this. Well, if you read the book, Ash was kind of in and out, but the hospital staff was not real supportive of Ash hanging around. And actually, the night before Joan died, they pretty much had to physically get Ash out of her hospital room. And he told her, basically, my lovely daughter, I love you so much. In the morning, I'm bringing you all kinds of yellow roses. And he didn't get to do that because that night... Jones sat up, yelled John's name in agony, and hemorrhaged blood out of her mouth that stained the pillow in dark red. And that was the end of Joan Robinson Hill. Stay tuned for part three of next week because there's a whole bunch more to this story, including the fact that there were multiple autopsies. They were secretly exhumed her body and found mud in the casket. So that's our story this week. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to spending more time with you and sharing stories of our industry. See you next week.